Hello and welcome to the Unheard Weekly Podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. This is the podcast where we try and go behind some of the over-reported stories in the mainstream press and find out about interesting stories all across the world which we think are important. This week I am joined by two excellent guests. We have Kate Andrews, who is news editor of the Institute of Economic Affairs and is rarely off our screens. And I'm delighted to be joined by the journalist and author James Bloodworth, whose latest book, Hired, is roaring along the Amazon charts. The Amazon charts, who you have taken to task in your book. Um, James, just give us a quick line about your book. Um, yeah, so it's it's on Amazon, but I would urge by uh, readers, listeners to, to to purchase the book elsewhere. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it came out in March. It's It looks at Britain's low-pay economy and... A lot of people have found that quite an interesting topic. And you went undercover doing a lot of um, jobs that a lot of people have opinions about but don't really understand what is actually sort of entailed. Yeah, so it was it was beyond the headlines to some extent. So um, Britain's low-pay economy, there's been lots of relatively good economic news in, in recent years around the number of people in work, um, around kind of growth in GDP. Um, but at the same time, I wanted to look at, at what's going on in terms of the number of people on zero-hours contract contracts uh people people you know day-to-day making ends meet and kind of how that is um in different parts of the country and in different kind of kind of jobs well it's had rave reviews and it's an incredibly important book um of its time and james has written a lot about this for um unheard as well and james we'll start with you um you're going to tell us about an underreported story that you've picked which has an international theme to it nicaragua yeah, so 26 people have been have been killed in Nicaragua in the past 10 days, um, basically during anti-government protests and riots over planned social security cuts by the government of Nicolas Ortega. Um, I think this is interesting in its own right, but it's also there's increasing discontent in Nicaragua with with the with the autocratic ruling style of of Ortega, who's a former former Sandinista leader who's been in and out of power for the past 30 years. Um, I think it's worth attention because um, I think it's a good example of of Latin America falling out of love with many of those leaders who were part of the so-called pink tide of left-leaning governments um, of a decade ago. So Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela would be the um, obvious example. That's I mean that's a tragedy. What's going on there? You have you have starvation. You have lack of medicine. You have um, an abuse of human rights and essentially a country that's turned into a dictatorship and. You see a similar sort of rule in Nicaragua where you see Daniel Ortega. Uh, so he abolished presidential terms fairly recently. Um, the last election in Nicaragua, he, you know, there was the widespread persecution of, of, of opposition candidates. And you see kind of, you, you could potentially see Nicaragua if protests continue uh, going down the road. Venezuela's gone down to some extent in that you, you, see, you either see the, the ruling class making concessions to protesters or it doubles down and moves further towards a, a kind of dictatorship model. And tragically, what tends to happen is the latter is often the case, isn't it? Doubling down and a lot of bloodshed and some, some pretty difficult times often follow. Why is it, do you think, that the left have such a romantic vision of these South American countries? I think distance is, is part of it. So, I mean, it's easy to, um, to I think it's Arthur Kozler said, you know, people peer through a wall, a hole in the wall at history while not actually have to ex- having to experience it themselves. I think that's particularly true with a country such as Cuba, where it's easy to kind of romanticize Che Guevara and Fidel Castro when, you know, you don't have to live on $20 a, a month, when you don't have to kind of, when just read one newspaper. Um, and I think something similar true, something similar is true about 
with countries like Venezuela, where um, even when times were good, there were, if you read the Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch reports, um, you could see that the independent media was being closed down, that opposition, human rights activists and politicians and journalists were being persecuted. Um, but people, people were, unfortunately... Um, I, I think the right does it with with different different kind of regimes, but I think um, unfortunately, when when a, a government kind of um, you know it, it, it purports to follow an ideology that you like, people are willing to overlook some of the some of the human rights concerns. And just to play devil's advocate, you know the the genesis of these um, I suppose they are whether you call them dictatorships, these very very lengthy leaderships. You know the intentions were good, and the intentions were noble and often they arrived because that country had gone through um, something which which hadn't worked for its citizens either. Why does the dream Sarah in these kind of projects? I think it's a mixture of um, ideology and kind of outward pressure. So I mean, in Latin America, you've had in, in countries like Cuba and Venezuela, you've had the United States has behaved fairly, fairly terribly towards uh, Cuba um, in the you know until Fidel Fidel Castro took power and then when he took power, I don't think he could have been a social democrat because I think you would you had you had kind of uh, vehement opposition whatever whatever he did and so there was a turn towards the Soviet Union there was and there's been a turn since then amongst governments like in Venezuela towards a more dictatorial model where the free press where human yeah. rights are kind of take take second. second I mean that's the great that's the great tragedy about these. Kate, what's your take on on James's story? Well, I think James makes some excellent points, and it's so important for us um, in the West who are sitting in these countries where we have democratic rights, we have freedom of press, we can speak out when we disagree with something that the government does. Don't glamorize or glorify what happens in these countries. And I I do think James is right. Sometimes we're we're so keen to jump onto an ideology that we'd like to see become successful that we ignore the realities and authoritarianism on either side, whether it be on the left or the right, ends in death and chaos and destruction. And in Nicaragua, we're we're seeing that. I I saw reports and now it's over 30 that have died um, because they're protesting against these pension changes. Absolutely horrific stuff. And, And James is right. We have to be careful on the right as well. It's very easy to point to Venezuela and Nicaragua right now because they're in the news and we should point to them and we should highlight them. Um, but, you know, sympathies with Pinochet and Chile, you have to be very careful not to not to be too kind to those who, um, you know, were, were taking part in, in non-democratic rule. I think even Singapore is an okay example uh, to bring into this as well. It's certainly not the same kind of human rights abuse that we're seeing in Venezuela. But when we talk about their health care, we talk about their tax system, we need to separate that and be very, very clear that this is not a country that can compete with the U.S. or the U.K. right now because it doesn't have the kind of um, systems in place that we would deem to be, you know, fit and, and fair for people around the world. I mean, it's interesting about, you know, Singapore is often cited in very glowing terms, particularly, um, you know, when we look forward to a kind of post-Brexit sort of world. And I think both left and right um, seize upon what they want to to seize upon. I suppose the moral of the story is, whatever hue of power there is, when there is absolute leadership, you know, kind of absolute power corrupts, mm-hmm. sadly, and then it often bleeds into these other things. You know, you don't have freedom of association, a lack of a free press, all of that kind of thing. But just James, going back to you, I mean, in many ways, you know, you're seen as as someone on the left. You know, you have a sort of a revolutionary zeal to you. You must have some sympathy for where people started off, 
you know, with these projects. And, you know, these 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 leaders, as much as we now castigate them, they were very popular at one point. And, and some people still hold them in dear affection. Yeah, I mean, I think with, with many of the kind of revolutionary uh, pink tide leaders in South America, many of them are a product of um, the 20th century where you had the US waging a dirty war in South America, where you had constant interventions in those countries to overthrow kind of dem- democratically elected leaders of- often. So Guatemala would be a good example. Um, so do you so, have sympathy for why these people kind of came to be? Yeah, I mean, to, to start with, to some extent, so, so some of the pop, some of the revolutions were popular at the start, but then they took more autocratic roads. And justified? Roads. No, I mean, it's, I think it's, as I said, I think it's half expediency and half ideology. I think you, I mean, someone, say, say the, the leadership in Cuba were half responding to events, American aggression, but also, I, I mean, Che Guevara admitted that it was also half kind of ideological affinity with, with that. So... I don't think we can make excuses for it. I mean, I think you can explain why some of these things, have been, it's been more likely that they would happen. But if you're against dictatorship, if you're against things like torture, you have to be also against it when your own so-called side is doing it as much as when the opposition is. Kate, turning to your underreported story. Now, Facebook is not an underreported name or brand, but you have a, a kind of a fresh take on what's happening there. Well, a new issue has surfaced recently. Facebook's uh, chief technology officer is going to be saying to MPs uh, that Facebook is going to make a real effort to crack down on the kinds of political ads that go around the social media platform and also to make it more clear to users and more transparent what they're seeing. Um, So some of it's really quite interesting. There's apparently a new view ads button which is going to come into the UK this year that will let members of certain pages and groups see what kinds of ads if they click this button are being perpetuated. So you'll, if you want to know, you know, is this subliminal messaging? Have I actually taken it in? I guess you can click this button and see what's been showing up on your news feeds and in the groups that you're in. And I think that's a very sensible way of self-regulating Facebook and for them to come in and say we're trying to be transparent with our users. But there's some bigger problems here, particularly um, their crackdown on political ads. Uh, if Facebook is going to be, it says they're only going to be letting um, political ads that have been submitted by authenticated accounts circle Facebook. Well, what is a political ad? Um, if somebody who has 500,000 likes on their page posts something political, is, is that a political ad? Um, you know, if, 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 local, if local advocates um, and activists are, are, are posting ads from other websites onto the Facebook platform, perhaps not promoting them with money, perhaps promoting them with money, how is that going to be defined? And there's been a lot of outrage from users of Facebook saying, you know, we want you to be more regulated, we want you to crack down um, on specifically on data protection, and we're upset about what you might have been showing to us. But if Facebook actually goes forward with this, I suspect we'll hear louder voices saying, why did you take down my ad? Why are you taking down my information to support local councillor X or local councillor Y? That's my freedom of speech. So I think this is actually potentially going to get a lot messier before it gets sorted. I think messier is definitely the word. I mean, the whole Facebook debate has been so interesting. And the idea of, you're right, you know, adverts spamming up your um, timeline. I mean, I just would like to stop getting anti-aging products and hair removal products. I think that's just quite rude and offensive to me personally. (laughs) Um, But the political stuff is really interesting because this is the thing that has changed. And I suppose I understand... Facebook feel that they have to do something because they've had so much criticism. You know, there's the whole, you know, did they affect the American election? But how do you, for example, regulate what is a 
a, a sort of belt and braces clear here's a political ad mm-hmm. and let's say what's a political piece of content mm-hmm. as well which you know gets shared so many times which might not be accurate whether you want to go down the fake news thing I mean I understand you naturally will probably think this is too much regulation I kind of get that but where do you draw the balance? Because a lot of people feel that something has to be done with Facebook. Well, Facebook's a private company, and so they are welcome to regulate in a way that they see fit. I think that a lot of people will actually push back on this crackdown. I mean, if Facebook wants to say that they have the right to, to remove what they deem a political ad, they're welcome to do that. The problem is that they're already being accused, usually by conservative groups, rightly or wrongly, um, that their algorithms are against them, that they're already taking down content that is thought to be too right-wing. Um, so there are a lot of these accusations out there already. And if Facebook actually comes forward and says, yes, we are taking down your content and your ads, I think there's going to be even more outrage. And I think it raises a broader question about the whole fake news debate, which is a very important one, especially as cyber war really seems to be the new initiative coming from countries that are hostile to the democracies in the UK and the US. But fake news ranges from gossip about the Kardashians and what the baby's going to be named to political propaganda, whether that be, you know, more legitimate stuff like what's coming out of the traditional parties or things that are uh, slightly less legitimate. And then it ranges all the way to actual fake news, the attempt to distort what people believe to be reality. And and as we muddy those waters and as people call for a crackdown on all fake news, they actually might find that things that they engage with every single day well, are the, being removed. Well, there's certain newspapers that would probably be out of business if it comes down to that. But just picking up on the regulation thing, I mean... I don't know, in terms of the numbers of people who would complain, if if it was really clear about what was a political advert and who it was paid for and who it was going to benefit, isn't that a reg- bit of regulation that actually the majority of consumers on Facebook would welcome? Possibly, but you as a user now, uh, you know, if you start any old Facebook page, can put money behind something and promote it. So again, it, it's it's really not clear, actually, I think, um, whether or not Facebook, if you put £50 behind something, is, is in a position now to come along and say we're taking it down. And if they were to do that, I think there would really be mass outrage because, of course, a lot of this conversation isn't actually about what these social media platforms post. It's about whether or not you think your agenda is being heard in the right way. And it has become very politicized if you voted to remain. But surely that's natural because, you know, the the truth is most people don't buy newspapers anymore. There's an entire generation of young people don't really even watch the news bulletins. You know, these social media platforms are a source of information for them. So people do think they should have some kind of regulation. Well, they're definitely a source of information. But when you have the entire internet at your disposal now, and it's estimated that more than half the world now is online, it's, uh, it might be easiest to spread, spread fake news now, but it's also the easiest time to be alive to find the correct information. James, what's your take on all of this? I think I'm, I mean I'm not against signposting on the basis that you so you can actually discern what is a political advert and what isn't. But I, I agree with Kate in terms of it, it does get slightly murky in, in terms of what's propaganda and what isn't. Because I mean you could label newspaper columns propaganda to some extent because they're often you know sermons to the converted. It's not necessarily you know an objective piece of journalism. Um, I also think education it it, it shows how important education is to this so people can be discerning about what news they're consuming about what is news and what is you know fake news and how how would you educate people um well i think it starts with 
first of all, not so much with educated people. I think, first of all, it starts with having institutions like the BBC, which you can actually trust, so that if you're unsure about, you know, you're on the internet and you have all these disparate sources of information, um, somewhere where you can actually check what's what's real and what isn't. Um, but I think you have to, I mean, the education system, I, I think, certainly has to, I don't know if perhaps it is already, but I think it certainly has to, you know, inculcate in people the idea, you know, that they have to be discerning about what they accept as true or false on social media. I mean, the idea of a trusted narrator is a really interesting point right now because, as you say, there's a plethora of different sources. But, of course, what what tends to happen in these debates now is who trusts this trusted source. I mean, we just this week, I mean, just the last couple of weeks, you have take the BBC, for example... You have Remainers saying that the BBC is inherently pro-Brexit. You have Brexiteers saying the BBC is inherently lefty and, and snowflakey and all this kind of thing. How do you create these trusted sources that people think, right, OK, I've, I've read two, three, four different articles. I'm going to just check it with something that I know has a seal of approval. How do you get the public to trust something as truly being independent? I think you need as many resource outlets as possible. Um, I think one of the biggest problems we're facing right now is that institutions that we once trusted are crumbling, and not just in the media, but you have the president of the United States attacking the FBI. And institutions that people once thought were credible are now saying, oh, that's fake news, that's fake news. But the market is already responding to this. We've seen loads, I mean, dozens and dozens of fact checkers, legitimate fact checking organizations and outlets pop up in the past five years alone to respond to this fake news. But phenomenon. how do you trust the fact checkers? Well, I mean, a lot of this, a lot of this does come down to confirmation bias, and people already live in their bubbles. They want to believe if they want to believe something, they'll find evidence to do it. But I think most people out there who are more thoughtful about these debates and just want to get to the facts have a lot of information at their fingertips, and the market is responding by providing these fact checkers. And I think the more platforms we have, so that we can corroborate stories and and check the facts multiple times, is a good thing. Well, that's something we'll definitely be keeping an eye on. Fake news is something that just comes up again and again and again. But I just want to say, the only time Facebook completely took down a piece of content was the unheard podcast picture where we had a naked podcast. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> and I got this message from Facebook saying, you have breached all our violations and we're tearing your content down. And It, it was had, just a nice feminist moment. Is it what you was. Were, yeah. It was some, some nice lady, Victoria Bateman, sort of expressing herself. And, and it was really funny because all the um, sexist, misogynistic stuff was fine and the racism I get <laughs> is fine, but boobies are not fine, apparently, on I Facebook. I will say that Twitter and Facebook, just, you know, again, as, as, as these platforms that theoretically can do what they want and should be able to do many things they want need to up their game when it comes to cracking down on abusive language. Absolutely. Also, also fake accounts on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So people can be thrown off of Twitter for misogyny or, or just abuse and then can instantly join again, rejoin with a fresh account. Which yeah, just I mean, the, the, there's so many issues that they, they need to get a, a grip on. Right, we're now going to go into my favourite section of the, the podcast every week, which is heroes and villains. Now, James, we're going to start with your hero of the week. Yeah, so Emmanuel Macron was my hero this week, which, I mean, I was very critical of his programme before before he came to office. You know, I was critical from the left. about. What were you critical about? Just so his programme seemed quite hostile to, toward the trade unions in France. Um, public sector reform, which, I mean, I think France needs to some extent, but it was couched in, in the idea that, you know, pu the public sector is bad, the private sector is automatically good. Kate might, might, <laughs> might probably agree with that. But um, I was very critical of that. But then I thought... Uh, this week, his approach to to Donald Trump has been um, exemplary. I think it was, um, it, I think he he was less obsequious than May in terms of his 
Um, the way she, I felt that she kind of flattered Trump to some extent. Um, James, I've got to stop you there. Come on. At one point, the hand-holding and the kissing was almost too much. <laughs> it was like, get a room. Yeah. Um, yeah, but also at the same time, I think his approach has better has been better than... I mean, many on the left have called for uh, Theresa May and people, leaders like Macron to, to completely shun Trump um, as, as if, you know, you can't work with America on, on the issue, global issues. Um, and it, it, that felt to me almost like virtue signaling, whereas I think he's done the right thing. He's, um, he's been a grown, virtue signaler as well, I th- though. I think he's been growing up enough, enough to accept that you have to have a, a working relationship with the American president. And yeah. then he's gone into the lion's den of Congress and he's laid out the differences in, in a grown-up manner. But do you think he'll actually get Trump to change his mind on anything. For example, the climate change accord. Do you think he'll be able to bring Donald Trump back into the fold on that? No, um, not necessarily. And I don't think it's that's necessarily the main purpose of him doing that. I think it's important in times like these to have, um, to kind of assert a more open uh, liberal opposition to to the direction people like Donald Trump want to want to take the world in. Kate, I can see you're itching to get in here. Well, like all politicians these days, I take them on a case-by-case basis. I think it's, you know, very difficult to just round them up one way or the other. Um, I do like a lot of what Macron was saying, unlike James, um, during his election campaign. He's a marketeer. He recognizes the benefits that markets have had to billions of people around the world. They're efficient. They create prosperity. We need a good public sector, um, you know, in developed countries, certainly. But oftentimes, the money isn't going to the right people. Yeah, and sometimes those markets break as well, and there's often market failure. Well, uh, but that's... That's the difference between the government and and the market. It's okay for businesses to fail. But if you're going to be put, you know, that's part of the process. It means that new ones will pop up, new jobs will be created. If you're going to uh, have the public sector fail, then you need to justify those public sector salaries. But that's perhaps a different conversation. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) I I, I think um, I I have mixed feelings about um, his presentation uh, with the U.S. president. Um, It bothers me, actually. I, I think him being friendly to Trump is appropriate. It's adult. It's correct. It does bother me that Mrs. May was thrown under the bus um, for going over and, you know, adhering to the special relationship and being friendly with the Oval Office, with the position of the president, thrown under the bus. Macron goes over, as you say, Aisha, kisses, hugs, holding hands, and it's all fine. Um, You know, I think Macron was right to go after Trump's tariffs. He was right to say, you know, we need to be in a globalized world. We need to work together. Um, On the Paris Climate Accord, I mean, this whole piece of legislation is, the whole court is a bit of virtue signaling. It's not really tackling climate change. It's, Ooh, well, we... <laughs> it's, pu- it's, it's pushing emissions onto other countries. If well, he actually comes out uh, with proper solutions to climate change, I'll be much more on board. Well, we can have, we, can have, we must, in fact, we must do a separate one on, on climate change at some point. But I mean, my takeaway on Macron, and to pick up your point about Theresa May, I think any political leader going to see Donald Trump, whether they are male or female, needs to take a line out of Melania Trump's playbook, do not hold his hand. (laughs) It's really simple. I don't care what political hero, just don't hold his hand. Um, But what I thought was interesting about Macron and the timing of this and the fact that he is the first leader to get a state visit in America is that I think he senses Angela Merkel is very weak, Theresa May is very weak, and I think he's making sure that he is the go-to guy for Trump in Europe. He is making sure that he is becoming top dog in Europe in terms of geopolitics. And I think that is all 
fascinating. I think you're probably right. But That's it's on his insight. terms to some extent as well. So mm. I mean, I think it's 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 smart to do that, but it's also not being not giving away all, all the things you you believe in, and also standing up for for what you think. Um, now, my uh, hero of the week. Um, it's the unveiling of the uh, Millicent Fawcett uh, statue in Parliament Square, and. Look, there's a lot of talk saying that, you know, statues don't matter, but I think they do. I think your kind of art and your culture, which reflect history, is really, really important. And I think um, history misses out a lot of people. We know that there are hidden figures. And um, the victors in history and the people that get the, the glory in history do tend to be white men. And hopefully that will change over time. But I thought it was really heartening to see that statue. I think it's a, a great statue. Um, it, you know, it was it, it was it was greeted with such kind of warmth and enthusiasm for people. But again, the whole point about the suffragette movement was deeds, not words, and probably deeds, not just statues as well. <laughs> and one of the issues I was going to sort of raise is I think you know the feminist agenda and the equality agenda has got to move on. And for me, unless we're actually doing things concrete in legislation and making changes in society, then it is all a waste of time. And one of the things I'm really proud of is the transparency on um, gender pay, which um, came in recently, which I actually helped draft in the 2010 Equality Act. But I know Kate has a very different perspective on that from me. Oh, just a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I I agree about the Fawcett statue. I think it's wonderful. Um, She was a true feminist in the sense that she believed in equality between men and women. What goes underreported but our head of education at the IA pointed out is she was also an economist and a classical liberal. And I worry that if she saw the debate today, she'd be she'd be absolutely appalled at the way that data is being used as an economist. I, I, I don't think we've gone down the path that she is, you know, as an equality campaigner would have liked to see us go. Um, data is good if the data is good. Um, bad data can lead to bad policy. And unfortunately, the gender pay gap reporting measures created a lot of statistics that told us very, very little about women in the workplace. If you look at the aviation sector as a one-off example, EasyJet and Ryanair were reporting pay gaps well over 50%. But what goes underreported or is in the fifth or sixth paragraph is that it's a breakdown between pilots and stewardesses. EasyJet hires double the number of uh, pilots in the worldwide average. Um, they're trying very hard to recruit more female pilots. They just don't exist. So so for me, this is a cultural issue, which I hope we could agree with a little bit. I, I a think, lot of this no, starts way before women get into work. Well, absolutely. But I think one of the reasons why that, that figure is um, important is because... We've been pushing how to move forward with equal pay for a long, long time from the from the 1970, 1975 Pay Act um, to various things. I mean, I started working on gender pay stuff when I first went into the civil service, gosh, like you know, about 20 years ago, and the needle didn't move. You know, companies said, look, we will do stuff on pay transparency. We will look at our gender pay gap. They never did until we forced them. And the figure is crude in many ways, but in a way that, that the, the clarity of that figure gets people starting to have a conversation. And I've actually been doing a lot of work with businesses who have said to us, their HR departments have said, and I think actually we come at this from a different point, but I think our outcome is is the sort of I agree, really yeah, pretty similar, yeah. So many HR people have said, look, this is a crude figure in many ways, but they do publish all the other stuff as well with a narrative that goes with it. 
But this figure and having to publish it is the thing that has got us being able to talk to our CEOs about it, our CEOs, our board about it. Because this figure is kind of quite arresting, it's making people for the first time actually start talking about all this other stuff. But I worry that when you perpetuate bad data for the sake of a conversation, it it, it still doesn't add up for me personally. Um, you know, it, it, we are demonizing these companies with these big gender pay gap percentages. And actually, EasyJet's campaign to bring more women um, to becoming pilots might be one of the best things that's happening for women who want to go into aviation. And yet, they've been demonized because of these crude figures. And I guess I just end by saying that we have to be really careful not to conflate equal pay with the gender pay gap. So, you say demonize. I say let sunlight win the day. And I think transparency is always important. I think transparency is the way you move the needle and things. And to take another employer, I mean, the easy jet thing, I think is you can almost explain that away because of the pilot thing. But take a retailer like Phase 8, that is for women. They had a massive pay gap. And it's not good enough for them to say that actually, we don't need to have women in our head. There's no reason why they couldn't have women in their senior head office jobs. But they do. I I looked at them in the report that I did on the pay gap reporting measures. And the company almost solely hires women. It's just that a hugely disproportionate number of their of their staff, regardless of their men or women, have to be in retail. They have to be on the floor. And the way that the government got them to publish their pay gap figures was always, always, always going to skew the data. So I think it's something like 47% of their board is actually made up of women. But because you have so many women being hired at the bottom as well, the way the data was forced to be reported meant you were always going to have a big pay gap. So that's when I come back to say, transparency is great, but this actually isn't a transparent activity. No, I totally disagree, Kate. I mean, I just think these are the conversations that women have been desperate to have for such a long time, and it has catalyzed such an incredibly important stream of work. But, um, James, I'm conscious that you've not been able to have a word. I don't want to mansplain by jumping Please mansplain this, just that would be incredibly helpful. I I was just going to say, though, that, um, you know, it's it's great that the statue's there. It's it's incredibly depressing that it's taken so long to get a statue of of a woman in Parliament Square. I mean, I would just say that I don't think representation is everything. I mean, I think you have to look at the structure of society more generally. So, um, you know, we we can't just, you know, when we talk about representation in Parliament or in companies, you have to look at, you know, um, the, the, the broader structure of the company. But I think representation is really important um, in terms of role models so that young girls growing up um, understand that, you know, look, you know, you don't have to fall into line with the stereotype of the old stereotype of what a woman is supposed to do, do with their lives. And Um, also what power looks like. Yes, definitely. And women can, you know, find themselves, get, get to positions of power. And there's, you know, you should aspire to that as much as boys. Absolutely. Um, now for our final segment, villain of the week. Now, so this is, I know, Kate. <laughs> dun, I feel dun, a little dun. bad calling him a villain. I'm not sure I go that far, but I'm very <laughs> disappointed. How about with uh, Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, this week? So, um, for a while now, he's had in the works an attempt to ban new fast food outlets opening near schools. Um, but there are so, so many schools all over London that this will essentially equate to, uh, you know, a zoning ban on new fast food 
outlets coming into the market, which means that others will have domination. There won't be much mar- much market competition. And of course, if there's a demand for them, then the customer loses out too. Now, this is being done in the name of childhood obesity. And nobody's going to disagree that we need to tackle childhood obesity. Um, but at the IEA, we looked at the 39 studies that have over the past 15 years specifically looked at fast food outlets near schools. Um, and, and the findings do not hold up to what Sadiq Khan wants to do. We found that six had a positive association with um, a positive association with children and obesity when it came to being near a fast food outlet. Um, 67% found no effect. Um, uh, 18% had mixed results and 13% fa- 13% found an inverse relationship, meaning that if you were a child going to school near a fast food outlet, you were less likely to be obese. So the evidence just it, it doesn't stand up. And I'm getting so frustrated with these public health initiatives that claim to be in the name of the children will do absolutely nothing to help children health and are really just an attempt by the nanny state to make people live different lives than the ones they want to live. If you really want to tackle childhood obesity, we need to address exercise. That is the main, okay, I main just want issue to bring, and healthy eating. I want to bring James in. What's your take on this? Is this the nanny state or is this just sort of actually kind of common sense? I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm not, I'm not against it, but I, I do kind of agree with with Kate in that there are so many schools in London. It's, I mean, it's hard to see how are you just going to ban any new fast food businesses Basically. in London. And I mean, I also agree. Although to be fair, there's so many fast food outlets in London. I mean, how many more could there be? I mean, Kate, do you, how many more do you want? I think, I think the exercise point is really important though, because uh, without without going all you know back in my day, I mean, when we were kids, you could you could eat junk food because we were exercising so much. I mean, you wouldn't just eat junk food, and I think it's, it's absolutely. It's really important that um, parents give their children a, a balanced diet. But I mean, mm-hmm. a, a packet of chips a couple of times a week is fine if you're if you're living an active life. But we know that most kids aren't living an active life. They're kind of glued to their screens. That's, that's perhaps the bigger and, problem that we should we should focus on. I mean, I I've got a slightly different take on this. I mean, there are schools, and but I mean, I just do think there is a problem with our diet and young people's diet. And actually, I don't think it is such a bad thing to say, you know what, I don't think there should be a KFC right next to a a school because if it's there, kids will want to go and eat there. No, I think that's fine. I mean, I think I think there are kind of extreme examples. Particularly older kids. I mean, primary school kids, it's slightly different because they're still getting picked up by their, their mum and dad or childminder or whatever. Yeah, and, and I mean, we where I live, there's um, there's a school and a kebab shop right opposite. And if you go in like three o'clock every day, you you know, it's, it's full of kids. Um, then then outside's kind of the streets defiled with like chip wrapping and stuff. And it, and it is quite annoying and something, you know, I... I I think something should be done about that, but I don't think it's a bit. It's not going to be a panacea. I think there are, there's a much bigger problem around children not exercising anymore. And um, also, that's got, that's got more to do with obesity than you know a pack one packet of chips every few days or something. I mean, also the there is the thing about how much time kids get for sport in schools yeah. now and the facilities um, for for sport in schools now, which is um, which are pretty dire. Well, this is it. It all fits into this concept of, of sort of putting people in boxes and making them do what what you want them to do. I, I take those anecdotal stories and I think they matter but I just don't think that the evidence suggests that kids are actually more likely to eat this junk food if it's nearby to your but point Kate, about- do you not like because I know you're obviously you're very very um the evidence but sometimes the evidence is what you see with your eyes which is like you know kids if there is fast food near them 
they will want to go and eat fast food. I mean, if there's fast food near me, I want to go and eat fast food. But, but I, yeah, I mean, we all have those inclinations, but I suspect that the three of us every day when we see a fast food outlet aren't going in. As Speak our me- for yourself. <laughs> as our, as, <laughs> I mean, I go in sometimes. I won't deny it. But, you know, that, that's, that's true for a lot of 16, 17-year-olds as well, which is held up by the evidence. But to go to your point about exercise and about the way that we regiment kids these days, I mean, we, we're very strict. We say, sit here, do this, do that, don't eat this, don't do that, rather than treating them a little more like grown-ups and having honest conversations with them about what's healthy for them. If they want to get up and run around, give them opportunity during the day to do that. I think a lot of this could be fixed by having a more liberal attitude towards the way that we raise kids. Also, encouraging some of these places to actually stock healthy alternatives. So kebab shops, you can get healthy food in there. You can get a pizza with salad. You can get a pizza with, with, with sheesh chicken. You don't have to go in there and, and buy kind of several batches of sausages have, and chips. Why don't we have juice bar springing up? Like <laughs> you do. Next I went into to like I went into a Joe and Juice up the other day, and I had the audacity to ask for a diet coke, and I got shamed. <laughs> I got actually shamed. So don't worry, well, it's Kate, happening. I think what, I think you'll find that we presented you with a lovely icy cold I'm can of it. diet coke. This is a very libertarian friendly, do what you like podcast. Um, well, look, that's it uh, from us today. Thank you so much uh, to my guests, Kate Andrews and James Bloodworth. And James Bloodworth's book, Hired, um, is out for sale now. I've been Aisha Hazarika. You've been listening to the Unheard Weekly Podcast. Tune in next week. 